Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another wonderful episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only video game podcast that floats in soup. My name is Mark B, and joining me today for our discussion is uh, our wonderful staff artist from Die Hard Game Fan, Mr. Jay Rose. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Mark? Oh, I feel fucking dandy. If I were any better, I'd be twins. Oh, wow. And they'd both be pooping. So, uh, Mr. Rose and I have bandied about different topics, and uh, after much consideration, we decided that what we'd like to talk to, or about, I should say, is Dark Souls, specifically the Souls franchise as a whole, and our opinions of the various games, starting from the ones we like the least, to the ones we like the best. This would predominantly be because, A, Dark Souls 3 was just recently released, and because Joel, for some shit-awful reason, has been playing Dark Souls 2, Scholar of the First Sin, and I'm sure has many opinions that he'd like to talk about with that. Absolutely. So, let's just start by saying, for the purposes of this exercise, one, Dark Souls 2, Scholar of the First Sin, counts as a separate game from Dark Souls 2, because despite the fact that they use similar mechanical systems and structures in terms of enemy placement, item placement, and what the games expect of you, they are ostensibly different games. Further, we're going to count Bloodborne, in this case, as a Souls game, because it fucking is. So with that in mind, that puts us at six games? Right, yeah. Okay, that's now, fair. Now, I'm one of those uh, guys who comes from the um, Kingsfield set of games prior. <laughs> I know we won't count those, but playing those and then playing Dark Souls, one can see the obvious likeness. From those games. Aesthetic similarities, mechanical similarities, mechanical the stuff that they borrow. Yes, even though uh, Kingsfield, Shadow Tower, etc. and so on were in the first person perspective, uh, the game's aesthetically mood, setting obviously, design wise, are all very similar. Uh, leading up to even Demon Souls, uh, very, very similar. And as we all know, well, some of us know, the uh, majority of Demon Souls was made to be Kingsfield's. Uh, five uh, before it was purchased by Sony, I believe, if I have my history correct, and turned into Demon Souls, which was a third-person game that we know as it is. Right, and the, the, the Souls franchise in general has borrowed plenty of elements from the Kingsfield franchise, uh, both hobbyists and less so. So, like, Patches was a, a I believe, a common character in Kingsfield. Uh, yes, Patches was a character in Kingsfield, I believe. Um, Seetha Scalus, we know, was uh, a character in Kingsfield. Yes, he was the dragon in Kingsfield 2, which was known um, to us as the original Kingsfield. Um, the Moonlight Greatsword is a... The Moonlight Greatsword is in every game, uh, pretty much. Which I thought it was interesting that they actually patched that into Bloodborne. Right which I, I feel kind of lends credence to the idea that it is a Souls game. Correct. Just because, you know, you're, you aside from the mechanical and the aesthetic similarities tonally, I mean, let's be honest here, at the end of the day, you're putting in a weapon that is commonly known as being both a Kingsfield weapon and a Souls weapon, so you're, you're kind of tying in that way. Was the Moonlight Greatsword in Shadow Tower, Shadow Tower Abyss? To my knowledge, it was not. I always felt like those were very much Kingsfield games, but they were very distant Kingsfield games. Like, they didn't really have anything thematically in common with the game. They were um, basically a experiment by From Software to take Kingsfield 
into a more drab setting, if that was at all possible. And um, they were successful, in my opinion, with both the original PlayStation game and the uh, Shadow Tower Abyss, which never came out over here. I played the import of it. Um, basically, the games were devoid of any music, uh, which was, as we know, Bloodborne and the Dark Souls games have no music except when you play a boss. There was no music whatsoever in Shadow Tower or Shadow Tower Abyss, um, boss or not. It was all ambience, strange noises, creaking, people mumbling in the background for no apparent reason, just just other than to freak you out. It was a very existential experience, perhaps, one should say. Uh, very weird. But um, they don't necessarily connect to Kingsfield. The character Atorius, uh, which was the expansion for the first Dark Souls game, was a character in Shadow Tower 1, I believe. Um, he was known as the king who essentially took the crown with the single eye, which was the crux for the story in Shadow Tower 1, which basically ruined the kingdom. Because as we know, in all of these games, somebody always ruined the kingdom before our characters get there. So basically, whether it be the Souls franchise or Shadow Tower, Artorius is always a fuck-up. Yes. Well, that's great. Right. I also find it really interesting that when you play, like, Souls games, if the Artorius armor is there, a lot of people love wearing the Artorius armor. And I'm just like, K. Yeah. Well, he's an asshole. I don't necessarily know that he's an asshole, but he's definitely a screw-up. Right. So, keeping it that there are six games in the franchise... Uh, under the caveat that we are including both Bloodborne and considering Scholar of the First Sin a separate entity from Dark Souls 2, I would I would say my least favorite game in the series is Scholar of the First Sin, and it's honestly the only game in the franchise that, from the admittedly brief time that I played it, I, I feel is legitimately bad. Um, I can't go as far as saying it's bad. It's um, it is mean. And when I say it's mean, a lot of the things that were changed in it were changed basically to give the player a hard time, such as the copious amounts of statues placed throughout the game, which... Um, Require the fragrant branch of yore in order correct. to unfuck. Yeah, correct. we were researching that, and it was, what was it, four total in the original Dark Souls 2? And yeah. 17? Yeah, four opposed to 17 in Scholar of the First Century. And they set it up in a way so that if you didn't if you found but didn't use all of the fragrant branches of yore in a playthrough, like for some reason you just didn't utilize all of them or you had just picked up more than you needed to use and you carried them over with you, those branches were still in your inventory, but you couldn't use them until you found them again in the game? Uh, that is correct. That's weird. I have just been um, experimenting with the game because um, I played and completed Dark Souls 2 when it came out, but I never invested any time in the add-on DLCs they did, um, the old Iron King, etc. and so on. I don't remember the fucking names of the other ones. I played through 
Well, I didn't necessarily play through because I didn't defeat the smelter demon that's at the end of the old Iron King DLC. Uh, which is kind of a letdown that couldn't even put a original boss monster into it. But that DLC was generally lacking. I mean, you, you it was just mean. The enemies were mean. Um, everything about it was just mean. Uh, annoying. And the only thing you could get out of it was a mask that increased your fire resistance. Um, and a... I believe it was a majestic greatsword. My thing is, from what I played of Scholar of the First Sin, I just, I don't feel like the people who were involved in developing it thought very hard about how they wanted to place enemies. I, I spent some time around the time that it came out following a, a Twitch streamer named Oganam, who had very passionate opinions about it, obviously. And the term that he used to describe Scholar of the First Sin was ROM hack. And from what I've seen of it, I don't feel like that's an unfair term. They don't really put any money into the game. They don't create anything new for it. They just take the same assets that already exist and move them around a little bit. And I don't like that the way that they chose to move things was specifically purposefully detrimental to speedrunning. Because that's a major part of what keeps these games going long after the initial launch and keeps them notable and keeps them branded. So I'm not 100% sure why you, as a developer development lead, would say, yeah, let, let's do a bunch of shit to make that really difficult and unfriendly for the part of our, part of our community that keeps this game alive and active. But I also don't like the fact that a lot of the content is reused. As you said, one of the late bosses in the first DLC that you played through was just a blue reskin of an earlier boss from the core game. Just meaner with, like, more more hit points, and yeah. And then there's another component of DLC later where they have a boss that's like a cat monster, but it's invisible. And then when you play later into that, you fight the same fucking thing again, but it's two of the cat monsters at the same time. Right. Like, you just couldn't make another AI pattern for this boss. You couldn't make another physical pattern. It just, you know, let's just use that same thing to put in two of them. Yeah. And to be fair, that's a common problem with Dark Souls 2 on the whole. But I feel like Scholar of the First Sin, in particular, just abuses that concept a lot more than the core Dark Souls 2 game does. And very little of the DLC except for, I think, like, the very last boss of it is interesting in a structural way. They don't add anything to the game that makes it worth playing through again, and they treat it like it's sort of a director's cut of the game, but it's just not a particularly well-thought-out or well-considered director's cut. Like, I really feel like they just repositioned everything in a way so that it was that they could say, hey, here's new Dark Souls 2, give us more money as opposed to actively trying to sit down and come up with a way to make that new and fresh and interesting for people who had played it already, while also making an experience that was enjoyable to those who had yet to play it. You can't even say it was a definitive version, quote-unquote, because Scholar of the First Sin was also released on PS3 and Xbox 360. Right, and the only difference is, you could get the DLC for Dark Souls 2, it was just that they completely repositioned a bunch of the enemies, which I don't think made the game better. 
in any meaningful way, and in a lot of cases, it made it worse. Yeah, it, it made it more annoying, like I said. My, rather than even make it difficult in different ways, it just made it more annoying. My, my thing is, I understand why a lot of people would argue that it's still a good game. Cause it's still a Souls game, and Souls games in general are generally good, but I legitimately feel like it was just a shitty cash-in that was specifically meant to try and get more people on board with a game that wasn't well thought out, wasn't well structured, wasn't well put together, and used as its core selling point the integration of the DLC, which in and of itself was no great shakes, and the repositioning of enemies, which wasn't necessarily more challenging, it was just spiteful in a lot of cases. Yes. I don't think there was a lot of time invested into it. I don't think there was a lot of money invested into it, if any at all. And I just, I don't think it was good, period. It, and it wasn't. You're, you're absolutely not missing out on anything if, if, by, by not playing through it. Um, your best option is obviously just to play through the original Dark Souls release. Which is interesting because the next entry in, in the list, from my perspective, the fifth best game in the franchise is probably the original Dark Souls 2. Right. I agree with you. Here's my thing. A lot of people will make the immediate observations, and to be fair, these are the observations I made in the very beginning when I hadn't put a lot of thought into it, that, oh, Dark Souls 2 was a bad game, or not as good a game as the others, or however you want to phrase it, because... It's just a bunch of dudes in armor, and it's less interesting, and you go up a windmill into an underground lava pit, and whatever. And I get those arguments, I do, but I really feel like those arguments are reductive at this point. Having right. put a lot of thought into it, those are reductive statements to make, because those don't matter as much. To me, it's Dark Souls 2 is still a fine game for what it is. I just feel like the development lead on that project wasn't really as prepared to make a Dark Souls game, but I feel like that person kind of lost what Dark Souls was, what the essence of Dark Souls was. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Dark Souls 2 had sparks of genius that obviously beckoned back to past games, finally discovering King Vendrick dragging his giant sword around. The frog with the skeleton in its mouth. The frog with the skeleton in its mouth, absolutely. Certain monster designs. Um, the woman singing in, uh, I believe it was uh, Shrine of Amana, was the name of the zone. Uh, there there were cool, there, there was cool shit in Dark Souls 2. Like, I don't want anybody to say that, you know, oh, there was no cool shit in Dark Souls 2 compared to the other ones. There was cool shit there. Right, it's just, the problem is, is that not only was there not enough cool shit, Dark Souls 2 predominantly, I think, suffers from two main flaws, which are, I don't really feel like there was enough imagination to the experience relative to the games that surround it, and I don't really feel like the developer invested as much time as they should have into making the game have that Dark Souls look and feel. No, the game was very pedestrian in comparison to the others. Right, it has that definitive sword and sorcery feel. It, which it is, definitely does. Which is fine, but there's always that underlying tension and dread in the Dark Souls franchise that really brings it into its own. 
that really gives it that unique flavor that the franchise desperately needs. And there was very little of that. Well, I agree that that's the lifeblood of the franchise. And it was also the lifeblood of the Kingsfield games and the Shadow Tower games before it. And uh, I definitely agree that it was thinned out in Dark Souls 2. Right, like, the, the, the best experiences that you will get if you follow along with one of the earlier Souls games is that experience where you're playing through the game and all of a sudden you just stop and go, what the fuck is that? Right. Like, a monster, a zone, whatever, gives you that experience. And very little of Dark Souls 2 inspired any kind of feelings in me at all, honestly. Right. Like, the, the Skull Frog was neat because I had never really seen anything like that before. But a lot of the other bosses just came from other ideas within Dark Souls without adding anything to it. It was the, the, probably the, the, the first boss that you'll likely face if you play through the game normally is going to be the Dragon Rider. Right, which is pretty much where we sit with just... No, I'm sorry, but that'll be the second boss. The face. second boss, right, which is pretty much where we sit with just the, the, the lack of inspiration. Right, number one, the Dragon Rider as a boss is just aesthetically bland. It, it just looks like... It's a cop-out. Right, it looks like the least interesting possible version of Ornstein that you could create in a game. Well, then you go and you fight Ornstein uh, down the way in the Cathedral of the Blue. Right, not only that... The Dragon Rider boss, his AI is fucked up so that you can have him rocket off the edge and go flying off into the abyss and die. Correct. Which you could tell when they put that into bosses in Dark Souls because the characters had specific animations that contributed to it. Right. Two bosses that I can come up with, and I'm sure that you can think of them off the top of your head. Uh, one of them was the Iron Golem. And the other? Uh, I... Ceaseless Discharge. Ceaseless Discharge, right. right. Those enemies had specific animations that indicated that you could cheap them out. Iron Golem, if you hit him enough times, he'd start wobbling, and then if you hit him again, he'd fall over on his ass, and if he was close enough to the edge, he would literally buckle and just roll off the edge of the cliff. Right. That was a design choice. Ceaseless Discharge would run after you and attempt to grab the ledge, and you could bash him on his hand until he fell off. Design choice. Dragon Rider, I don't think that was a design choice, I just don't think they bothered to playtest it, and then when they did Scholar of the First Sin, they didn't playtest it again. Right. And that boss is aesthetically uninteresting, mechanically uninteresting, easily cheesed out in a way that they've never bothered to fix. Even if you do fight him traditionally, he is in no stretch of the imagination difficult, and then they repeat that boss again, but they make you fight two of them. Correct. And that's one of the least interesting boss fights in that game. Easily. It's not that the game is bad. It really isn't, because it, it's a good intro. It's Baby's First Dark Souls in a lot of respects, I feel. Well, it Lords has, of the Fallen is Baby's First Dark Souls. No, Lords of the Fallen is bullshit. I have watched many videos where dudes have just shield-spammed m monsters to death, okay? Right. Fuck that game. But it's, it's, it's Baby's First Dark Souls in a lot of respects. It's much easier. It's easier to deal with. It's literally just circle strafe around the enemy, stab, stab, stab the ankles, and then just wait for the enemy to die. And it's, it's not bad, it's just, it's very much the sort of game where you can understand why people like it less than other entries in the series. Like, right. um, again, going back to uh, the live streamer Oganom, who I was following for a bit, 
Um, he, for the longest time, was a Dark Souls 2 convert. Hated Dark Souls 1, didn't like it. Hadn't really spent a lot of time with it, but knew he didn't like it. Finally, one day, he forced himself to do a run of Dark Souls, and by the time he got done with it, like three or four streams later, he was proclaiming to everybody it was the best game in the series. Right. Dark Souls 2 is very lore-dense. I'm not going to say that it's not. And if you like the lore, it's definitely a great game to play. Mechanically, structurally, it's clearly an inferior product that just doesn't have that powerful aesthetic and borrows too much from Dark Souls without understanding why things are the way that they are. Right. Again, like the... the the giant rat that you face as the second test of the uh, the Rat King or whatever. Um, it, it's literally just fighting Sith all over again, except that you have to fight four tiny rats who can either be easily defeated or can ruin the game for the for the next battle. That's it. it it's just Sith with a couple of rats around it. Right. You know, again, the Dragon Rider is just a guy, and then when you have the two Dragon Riders, the two Dragon Riders are just two guys. The the giant battle, they repeat that a couple of times in the game, and it, it's never especially interesting. The Rotten is a visually interesting boss, but it's just a pile of crap. And then they do Q-Lag again, but this time it's on a scorpion. Uh, yeah, no comment on that boss. No. It's... I feel like if that guy were given another opportunity, maybe he would make, fix his mistakes, and maybe he would realize what he had done wrong. But then again, on the other side of things, I'm not necessarily 100% sure about that, because if you look at the other game that was spawned from going and doing his own thing, that's actually our fourth game that we discuss here today, which is Bloodborne. Right. Now, Bloodborne mechanically and structurally is a very solid piece of work. It's not necessarily my favorite mechanically, because I feel like it's a little bit more limited in terms of what it allows from the player. Even with the DLC added on, uh, you still can't play a really heavy armor blocking type, it, the majority of the game still has to be played as if you are playing uh, Dark Souls May Cry, but right. I, I can understand how that's a thing that people might like. Right. They did, within the DLC, to be fair, they did add in some components that allow for uh, heavier blood tinge usage, so you can actually utilize spell casting and whatnot as a thing, and there is actually a weapon that if you jack up your blood tinge dramatically... Uh, can be a really effective magical weapon, which is the, the tentacle weapons that kind of turn you into like a, a servant of Cthulhu of sorts. Right. But I feel like Bloodborne has the reverse problem, and I know that you'll agree with me on this, in that while Dark Souls 2 had very little instances that inspired fear and dread, and that, that isolation and desolation sort of feel that you get from the franchise, Bloodborne just had too fucking many. Yeah, Bloodborne, for all intents and purposes, was a horror game. Right, and it's... I don't even say it's a horror game, necessarily. Like, that's... That is a very reductive entry-level description of it. I feel like it was a splatterpunk game. Yeah. It's... If you want to put it into comparison perspective, Dark Souls, as a series, is usually H.P. Lovecraft. Bloodborne was Stephen King. Yeah. And I like Stephen King, don't get me wrong. But, casual racism aside... There are very few horror writers that are as good at what they do as H.P. Lovecraft. And unfortunately, Stephen King is just not one of those writers. That's correct. He is a great writer, but he's not H.P. Lovecraft. And Bloodborne is kind of the same way. It's There's a lot of fucking gore. A lot of it. It, it feels like you're playing a trome movie at times. I mean, I love Bloodborne. I, I thought it was aesthetically amazing. Um, I love the monsters. I love the setting. I love the theme. Um, but yeah, it was just a completely different 
sort of thing that just went way out of the ballpark of what we know as Dark Souls, which I guess was the idea, because it wasn't supposed to be Dark Souls, but right. Maybe it needed to pull itself back a little bit. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, there's just too much. And it's I don't feel like that's a bad thing necessarily, but it does suffer when compared to games that utilize the fear and dread in equal measure in comparison to what it does. Because you get a lot of bosses that are just what the fuck. And the problem is, with a game like Bloodborne, you don't, you don't really get that ability to let things sink in as much as you would in something like Dark Souls. Dark Souls gives you that ability to narratively let a concept sink in and basically take root in your head. It gives you that ability as a player to analyze things and think about things and ruminate on things. Bloodborne doesn't really have a lot of that going on, or it isn't trying to do that in any case. Like, there's a point where you go into the Nightmare and you fight Mikalash, and Mikalash is an interesting enough boss, I suppose. He's just a dude who can summon magic and tentacles, but whatever. Well, the concept behind him was interesting. Right, his, his ability to teleport around and run away and, like, try to trick you into different things was neat enough. But the thing is, you kill Mikalash, and you get to that, and he, you know, he screams he's going to wake up, and he's so upset about this. And the problem is, Bloodborne gives you about five seconds to really latch on to the idea when you first see his dead body surrounded by so many others of them in the room where you eventually go to the Nightmare. It gives you about five to ten seconds to really latch on to that idea, pick it up and remember it, so that you can carry it with you to that boss fight. It's it's not a thing that you're going to necessarily recall or care about. Dark Souls is generally better paced about that sort of thing. Like, they'll reveal something afterward, or they'll make it meaningful afterward. Right. Whereas here, a lot of the stuff that's supposed to be meaningful, like, just falls flat because there's so much of it. It also doesn't help that a lot of the enemies just seem grotesque for the sake of being grotesque. It's too much gross stuff. Like, they have the blood-starved beast, and then later they have an alternate version of that monster with no head. And that's neat, don't get me wrong, but it, it's two enemies where it's just blood and gore for the sake of, and like gangly limbs, for the sake of blood and gore and gangly limbs. And it's, it's a culture shock. You see too much of it, and the game just stops having that impact, to the point where I got to the final alternate boss, Yarnum, uh, the lady in the fucking basement, pretty much. Right. Did you fight that boss? I did. Yes. I've seen all three endings of the game. Yes. Her boss fight is challenging enough, one supposes, but the core problem I have with that is not that it's challenging or anything of that nature, it's that by the time you get to that boss, you have seen so much of that game that when she starts, like, using the blood of her aborted fetus and cutting her own wrists to deal damage to you, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. That boss as a standard structural boss in a Dark Souls game would be one of those, holy shit, what am I seeing moments in Bloodborne? It's, oh, that's a thing. Right. It's just, there's too much. There's so many bosses that are memorable that it all just kind of blends together. And it's hard to really isolate onto any one thing that's cool and interesting because so much of it is just grotesque and weird for the sake of being grotesque and weird 
that it, it all kind of runs together. It starts out pretty tame for the most part, but then it's right. It's just it's just uh, uh, turns into what the fuck for the rest of it. Right. I will give the game credit to a point. Up to a certain point, the game is is one of the better games for forcing the player to learn about how to deal with certain things. Like you wake up in the infirmary and you go to leave, and the monster kills you. Then it teaches you just as a as a a concept of perceivable consequence. It teaches you monsters will kill you, don't die. Right. And it takes you back to the hunter's dream where you get your first weapon and you get your first gun. And from there, the game kind of teaches you how the core mechanics work fairly well. It's not necessarily the sort of game that needs to present you with a crap load of tutorials beyond what buttons do what in order for you to pick it up and, and wrap your head around it. The, the one thing I don't like is they don't really teach you how like the parrying system works, how you can utilize the gun to effectively stun enemies in the middle of long attacks. Right. You can learn it well enough, and it's definitely a useful system, but the game doesn't really go out of its way to try to teach you those things or to try to make those important. So for players who don't really realize that that's a thing, because the game doesn't do as much as it should to educate you on that, you'll go into Bothered S coin battle and have no idea what the hell you're doing. Correct. I also feel like it's kind of frustrating that heavy weapons win the day in that game as often as not. Like, for, for the majority of players, if you want to have an easier time with the game, all you really have to do is pick the axe until you get Ludwig's. And then you just blast through the rest of the game with Ludwig's, and the, the game can't do anything about it. That's what I did. And it's, it's frustrating because I feel like that is not as much of a thing in, the, in Bloodborne Brethren. So it's not a bad game. Again, it, it's still easily a good to great experience. It, it lacks a little something that some of the games higher up in the list have to offer. Now, the number three in the list may be, may be where we start varying a bit, because for me, that's going to be Demon Souls. Okay. Demon Souls is a game that, if I'm being honest, I still mostly put into the place that it's in now because of what it did and what it gave to us in the franchise, not so much because of what it is as an actual experience. Right. Demon Souls ultimately begat the Souls franchise. It's a great concept. It has a lot of great execution points to it. Uh, it's aesthetically where so many of the things that we've come to expect from the Souls franchise were born. It's very interesting. And some of the boss monsters in particular are very, very well thought out. Uh, the Legion boss, as an example, like the very first significant boss you face, is just an amazing boss that they've been consistently using in later games to lesser effect. Mm -hmm. But that first time you see it, it's such a neat idea. Right. Um, launches a giant spear at you when the door opens, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then there's one of the later bosses in the game that's entirely a storyline boss. I think it's like this, like the deformed king or whatever who's just fighting you in a wet hallway. Right. And it's, it's just such a completely useless boss fight mechanically. But from a lore perspective, it's such an interesting boss battle. And you don't you don't really see them do that so much anymore, where the boss is just a piece of shit, and you know you're going to beat him, and it's almost impossible to lose. But it's so important and meaningful to the narrative that going through it says something. Right. That said, uh, you can kind of tell that they weren't really prepared to cast off the shackles of Kingsfield at that point. No. 
And that game still very much feels like Kingsfield in third person. And I don't feel like the game holds up as well when compared to its brethren. I also get a lot of people love the multiplayer in Demon Souls, but that's because it, it's it's the most reductive entry-level multiplayer that's available in the franchise. Right. The moment you kill a boss or an invader, or, or you invade somebody, you kill them, you get your soul back, and you immediately become a target for other people who will come to kill you. And if they kill you, they get yours. Correct. Well, Demon Souls was uh, a big deal for me. Um, obviously, I um, imported a Asian version of it and played it before it actually was even released over here. Uh, and then played through it again when it actually was released over here. Because I'm fucking nuts. But um, to be fair, Alex did the same thing. Right. He and I are not spent together with that. I did it being such a big Kingsfield fan for a number of years. I positively couldn't wait for the game and had to play it. Uh, I was not disappointed, obviously. I knew going into it, reading whatever I could, which was not much. There was not much about it to read because nobody really gave a shit about it prior to it being released. And then everybody was like, wow, when it started getting the uh, reviews that it, the review scores that it got. But, um, and then it got Game of the Year on GameStop. Spot. GameSpot. When it was in development as Kingsfield 5, what I did read was that they wanted to make it a, they wanted to make Kingsfield faster. And one thing about from software, if you play enough of their games, is you know that nobody will ever tell them what to do or what to change. I mean, we're, we're playing Kingsfield on PS2 at the time, and we're still looking up and down with the R1 and R2 buttons. Oh, God, don't even get me started from software and their weird inability to change anything. We've had that conversation about Armored Core so many times. They released the DualShock controller for the original PlayStation, um, and the DualShock 2 came out right around, right at launch, actually. Right. Uh, so the dual stick option had been available pretty much since the very first Armored Core came out. They didn't add that in as a functional option until Armored Core Nexus, which I want to say was like the seventh game in the series? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, like how long do you as a developer have to go we are like, nah, we're not going to use that shit. We're just going to make everybody look up and down with the fucking buttons. The base buttons! Yep. Now, the stick did absolutely nothing in Kingsfield, the Ancient City, which was Kingsfield 4. The last Kingsfield. And uh, it just kind of just sat there while you played. And you were like, why can't I use this to look up and down? And there was no real answer for it. You would strafe with the R1 and the L1, and you would look up and down with the R2 and the L2. That's just the way it was. That's the way it always was with every Kingsfield going back to the original PlayStation. That's the way you had to look up and down in Shadow Tower Abyss. Now, in that respect, Shadow Tower Abyss, you would actually attack 
with the analog, the right analog, which was very weird because you had a number of attacks to use. You could swing left and right with the analog and stab by moving the analog up and then do another move by moving it down, but whatever, without getting too much into that. Uh, yeah, that kind of seems like somebody who doesn't really have a good idea of why people put the stick into place in the first place. It's, right. It, it's kind of like the original Monster Hunter, where you would use the analog stick to attack, and everybody said, why in the blue hell would you do that? And Correct. Right. In every game after that, Capcom said, yeah, you know what, you're right, why the hell did we do that? What were we thinking? <laughs> that wasn't from software. No, but it's 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 the same general principle. From Software was worse because when From Software had that pointed out, they said, "Man, fuck you guys," and just kept doing it anyway. Yes, they had rock solid fucking heads that just would not. They would not change anything for anyone. It seemed, and it was just like walking. So anyway, we get Demon Souls, and you know. It moves quicker. I was getting ready to play a Kingsfield game. I expected the dude to move really slow. And, you know, the combat was quicker. Everything was different. I had to essentially learn a whole new game. Because I'm really good at Kingsfield and strafing around and stabbing and doing that kind of shit. Um, those games are acquired taste. You move very slow in them. Like I said, you have to use the, the triggers to look up and down. And strafing is a priority, or you're going to die. Um, so, right, playing playing Demon Souls and, and learning that and all of that stuff and, and me appreciating it, despite the fact that I wanted Kingsfield, made it a special game for me. But in that same respect, I can say that the original Dark Souls was definitely an enhancement over what Demon Souls was for a number of reasons. Uh, the Estes Flask system uh, comes to mind initially. Yeah, Demon Souls used fully consumable items that you would have to grind out if you wanted to be able to heal up appropriately. Correct, right, or buy, right. Yeah, and that was this was a problem that a lot more people brought up when they were discussing Bloodborne, because at the time Demon Souls was new and we didn't have a frame of reference for it. But consumable healing items that are not replenished in any way, shape, or form generally run counterintuitive to the idea of bashing your head against that difficulty wall until you break through or black out. Right. Having to stop to go grind out items, whether it be through grinding souls so you can purchase them, or just plain grinding them out, is, is kind of counterproductive for the player as often as not, and it isn't it isn't really an enjoyable experience, especially when a couple of boss battles that you fail at can just leave you completely dry. And unlike Bloodborne, which had just the one item to heal you, there were several different items in Demon Souls that you would use that would heal you to different degrees. Uh, different kinds of crescent grass, I believe they were called. It was like half moon grass, crescent moon grass, anything like that. It was the moon grasses. Right, the moon grasses that you would use to heal. Right, and that's fine conceptually for a JRPG where you have healing items of different capability right. uh, that can be utilized. But again, for the Souls franchise, it wasn't helpful. Like Dark Souls fixed all so many things about Demon Souls that were just poorly implemented and poorly thought out. And it was a great first attempt, and it's a great experience. But it's a great game. 
it is a great game, but it, it's a game that is as much a great experience for what it did as it is a great experience on its own merits. Well, it's archaic in comparison to Dark Souls. Yeah. So would you would you also put it at like third place in your list at this I point? Would. I would. I would. Okay. Now, for me, I've been having difficulty trying to pick out which of the remaining two games would go second and which of the remaining two would go first. For me personally, after having put a lot of thought into it, I honestly feel like Dark Souls 3 is my second favorite game in the series. Yeah, Would, I also agree. Okay. All right. Now, I do love Dark Souls 3 a lot. I do have issues with it, obviously. But by and large, I feel like it's the first game in the series since Dark Souls that really got 100% what Dark Souls was about and executed it very well. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> you had one distinctly uniform path that you would go on that would vary in a couple of minor ways. It was just a constant track of loneliness and despair. The The game rapidly alternated between horrifying monstrosities that wanted to rip your face from your bones and just regular dudes. Thematically, the game vacillated as needed from normal places that you might expect in a sword and sorcery setting to terrifying horror dimensions of just shit. And I felt like the game was generally paced very well. A couple of the boss designs were not as good as you would have expected. And while it's easy to forgive that six games in, it's, it's still very much a case where Less of the battles in Dark Souls 3 are as memorable as in some of the other games, just because we've seen it already. Correct. Like, the Legion battle that they have here is just boring. Right. You've done it, and there's nothing particularly interesting to it to make it special or unique or different. Um, they, they reuse that fucking pit demon, and it's only for, like, a sub-boss, but it's still there. And then they reuse its concept and structure for another boss later on in the game that, while not visually and mechanically identical, is close enough. Right. That said, though, I, I really did love the way that they referenced Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2, effectively. Like, Dark Souls 2 really felt like it, it didn't give a shit about Dark Souls so much. Well, it was in a completely different realm. Yeah, but Dark Souls 3 is technically in a related realm as well. It's it's You can see how it's different but the same. Right. And they still managed to fit in some Dark Souls 2 references. Like, you see Gilligan at one point, for example. Correct. Dark Souls 3 really knew how to twist that knife. Right. So that you went into the game and you said, Well, shit, this is a thing I wasn't expecting to see but it, it reminds me of what I've done, and it gives you that feeling of emotion that you weren't even expecting just because it takes things that you remember as a player and just sticks it in a little bit and twists that knife. The one thing I, I, I did appreciate in particular was that it went out of its way to just kind of tell the exact sort of story you would expect coming off of Dark Souls of just despair and isolation, and just shit. Right. Well, like, it could only be that way. 
Well, yeah, I mean, Demon Souls, Dark Souls, and Dark Souls 3 were all very much that story of, no matter what, you are inevitably alone. You are alone and everything sucks. Even if, anybody helps, even if anybody helps you, they die, inevitably. In a post-apocalyptic fantasy realm. Right. And then, as you go through Dark Souls 3, you not only see all of the people who, if you follow their narratives through to the end, ultimately die from associating with you, but there are a couple of cases where something good can come of it. Like, um, I don't remember her name, but the blind nun. If you follow the path with her appropriately, you can eventually help her redeem herself and become what she ideally wants to be. And that's that's a nice, simple thing that gives you that like little ray of hope of, okay, maybe it doesn't suck. So you don't get into that situation with Dark Souls 2 where there's a couple of oppressive, negative things that come up. But, by and large, it's there's a great deal of positivity. But you also don't get into the Dark Souls 1 trap where everything fucking sucks and everything is fucking just death. Or Bloodborne. Uh, yeah, I, I'm thinking more Bloodborne there, actually. Because Dark Souls 1 even had some redemptive shit in it. Like, it, it had instances where you would do a legitimately good thing and something good would come out of it. Bloodborne, pretty much everybody you encountered in that game was fucked. Yep. The little girl fucking dies in the sewer. Her sister fucking dies in the sewer. The uh, the the prostitute fucking crawls into an underground passageway and like has some kind of weird fucking demon fetus. Fuck! Did anybody have a good fucking story in that game? No, absolutely not. Like I think the old woman and like the 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 weird little lumpy guy like that was like guarding that place like ended up okay. But like even then, nothing particularly good happened. They just didn't die. Everybody else, like, if you was, even even the people, like, the few NPCs that you encountered that had some type of a story arc, fucking die. Like, the, the, the crow woman, if you helped her all the way to the end, she's dead. Great. Okay. Even the doll was tragic. <sighs> yeah. Fuck. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, God. Yeah, but, like, Dark Souls 3, Dark Souls 2 was too far in the opposite direction. You were saving people and building the town of Majula up, and it's... It's not really what Dark Souls is about. They no. gave you a couple of people, like the three NPCs, who you could get achievements off of by completing their quest lines, which who fucking thought that was a good idea. But those characters inevitably had tragic endings and tragic paths to their stories. But the rest of the town, you were building up a town full of people and inspiring and creating hope. Not a bad story to tell, not really in theme, appropriately. No. So it's it's... That's another big division there, where Dark Souls 2 is ultimately kind of a story of hope and, you know, and success. And that's fine, but it's not necessarily in keeping with the concept. Bloodborne is just, fuck you, everybody's fucking dead. And Dark Souls 3 is a lot of the people that you meet are just miserable. And even if you follow their paths through to the proper end, they die or they go insane or they commit suicide. But there are a few people you can legitimately help, so you can feel like you're making a difference. The world is just oppressively against it. There's some sort of balance, correct? Right. The reason why I don't feel like Dark Souls 3 is as good of a game as Dark Souls honestly has nothing to do with the mechanics, because the mechanics in Dark Souls 3 feel great. It's a much more challenging experience, and it's a much more mechanically friendly experience. Like, going back to an older Dark Souls... After oh, yeah. playing yeah. through Dark Souls 3, fucking hurts. I can definitely, uh, 
I can definitely agree with that. Going back to uh, or starting Scholar of the First Sin after completing Dark Souls Three, you'll notice it, it's the character moves completely differently. Uh, the combat is a lot clunkier. Uh, Dark Souls Three is very very smooth. It is. The, the problem I have with Dark Souls 3 is that Dark Souls 3 really assumes that you are one of the diehard fans. Right. And it's paced in that way. And I don't feel like the pacing is as good as it needs to be. If you play through the original Dark Souls, what's the very first possible mimic you can encounter in the entire game? Quite a good way to... Sen's Fortress. Right. What's the first mimic you can encounter in Dark Souls 3? Right near the beginning. Right, like the first or the second treasure chest you find is a mimic. Right. Like that's, pacing-wise, that's just, it comes across as the game saying, ha-ha, fuck you, time to die. And it, it, it kind of, it kind of feels like the game is sort of a sock sniffer. Right. Dark Souls feels like a game that's confident in what it's trying to do. Dark Souls 2, for its warts, feels like a game that at least appreciates what it's doing, even if it's a hard game to appreciate. Dark Souls 3 feels like the sort of game that gets home at the end of the day, takes its own socks off, and then just before it throws them in the hamper, sniffs them so it can fucking appreciate its own fucking stink. Well, I think they've, they've realized they've arrived. I mean, I don't think... I don't think From Software is, like, sniffing their own socks or anything, because I don't, I don't get that impression of them. But, uh, no, but the game... The game definitely has an air of pompatuity, that's a word to it, yeah. Right, the, the game feels like it knows that it's awesome. Right. Like, the, you know, the first, game's fe the first game feels kind of unconfident. It, it feels like it knows that it's still in its learning stages. Dark Souls feels like a game that is confident in itself. Right. Dark Souls 2 feels like it's confident in itself because... It's doing what the prior game did without understanding why. Right. Bloodborne feels overconfident in a lot of respects. Right. But Dark Souls 3 feels appropriately confident, but arrogantly confident. Yeah. Like, not overconfident, because the game clearly delivers, but confident in a way where it says, Yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing, and fuck you if you don't agree with me. Yeah, and pretty it's, much. The pacing on it suffers because of that. There are instances where you will find, in some zones, more Mimic chests than there are regular chests. Mimics are no longer a thing to be feared and to be paranoid of, or a thing to really pay attention to, so much as a thing that you expect and don't have to learn about because you'll just attack every fucking chest. Right. Monster placement rarely uses anything new and different, from previous games, and when they do try out something new, it's the Puss of Man shit. Right, And right. you just learn to deal with that by either running up on the dude and hitting them before they transform, or getting the fuck out of there. The game knows what it's doing. It's confident in what it's doing. But it rarely does anything beyond increasing enemy counts or changing enemy attack patterns in line with the new combat system. It's a very fast system. But the game is mostly challenging because of how quickly enemies respond now, not because of any type of pattern recognition challenges or difficulties. Like, the hardest boss in this game is easily the Nameless King. And the Nameless King is mostly as difficult as he is 
because of his rapid response to things due to the speeding up of the experience. And, like, that's it. Right. You know, if, if you can deal with the fact that he attacks heavily and frequently, it's not really any more of a challenge than anything else. It's just he is specifically the top tier because of how heavily and how frequently he attacks. The challenge is different because the game only expects you to learn a few new things. Right. I also feel like they reused a lot of stuff, like a lot of gear is reused from the prior games, which is fine to a point because you're going to have your greatest hits of weapons and armor and whatnot, and that's fine. Right. But there comes a point where I don't feel like there was as much of an impetus to try new things as there was in Dark Souls, or even in like Dark Souls 2 and Bloodborne to a certain extent. Like, you'll just find a weapon and you'll just be okay with it. Like, I got through the entire game using a dark sword that dropped off of one of the dark wraiths. Right. And, I mean, to be fair, in Bloodborne, like I said, you can get through that game with two weapons. Right. So, it's it's not like it's a dramatic difference. But Dark Souls had a lot more experimentation on its side. Dark Souls had a lot more, this is weird and different and we need you to pay attention because this is weird and different. Dark Souls 3 is... Yeah, here's this longsword. You can beat the whole fucking game with this longsword. Have fun. Right. Well, if you're good enough. It's always a, it's always the instance if you're good enough to do it. It's a game that's kind of happy in where it is. It's content in where it is. And it's happy to show you that it's happy in what it is. And that doesn't make it a bad game. It, again, it's the second best game in the franchise from our perspective. But... It's definitely a game that is kind of content being where it is and doesn't really have any higher aspirations. Right. Which is, it, I feel like is probably part of the reason why Miyazaki said that, you know, that was the last game in the franchise. Right. And I agree with him. It, it, it's definitely a good place to stop for a while, if not at all. Because where do you go from there at that point? Now, that said... This may or may not be a contentious argument, depending upon who you are, but from our personal perspective, apparently, the best game in the series, pound for pound, is is still Dark Souls. I agree. And to be fair, Dark Souls is a flawed game. Blight Town in general is just the shits. I'm I'm not really a big fan of the Tomb of the Giants. The game, even now, playing it emulated on the Xbox One, has some serious problems with slowdown frame rate issues, but by and large, that was the game where they knew exactly what they wanted to do, and they did it, and it worked. Right. The game was as close to a masterpiece as it could be, I believe, in regards to the series collectively. To be fair, that game, again, it also did reuse some content. You fought the same fucking demon boss like three different times, and... A couple of the bosses were, to to be completely blunt about it, not great. Right. Bed of Chaos. Yeah. Pretty pretty corny. Extremely corny. And it it was fine, at least, that it retained the damage that you dealt to it. But no boss in a Dennis Souls game should involve any kind of dodging of holes in the floor or jumping puzzles. Right. But for the most part, Dark Souls is the best game, to me, for three reasons. One, mechanically... Even now, with Dark Souls 3 and Bloodborne playing better than Dark Souls does, I think, right. Dark Souls is still a game that you can pick up and play and understand and work with. It's not that hard to jump into Dark Souls and get it. 
Demon Souls is a little bit clunky in comparison, and Dark Souls Two, honestly, just picking that up again just just hurt me. It it just it feels weird. Yeah, it it, it just it, it made my fucking penis soft. By and large, Dark Souls is a game that holds up mechanically, structurally. It is a game that you can pick it up and you can understand what it's trying to do. And not only that, I, I feel pound for pound Dark Souls is the game that introduces you to the concepts and the systems better than any other game in the franchise. Correct. Like, the original Demon Souls had you wandering around fighting these dudes, and then this ogre comes and bashes your fucking brains in. And whoops, there you go, you're done. Dark Souls 2 has you wander through a forest for, like, 20 minutes before you eventually get to the town of Majula. Right. And it teaches you a lot of the basics, but you have to go out of your way for some of them. Dark Souls 3 is paced fairly well in the beginning, and it does actually give you a certain amount of learning, but it also kind of assumes that you know some stuff. Right, because then you fight a boss that right you can die to. Pretty, it, it's not impossible, it's not that bad, but if you're brand new, yeah, I've seen if people get smoked. If you're brand new, it, it's, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, for us as experienced players, I didn't die fighting the boss. I didn't either. Uh, I know uh, Sean, Mr. Sean PC, did not die fighting the boss. Uh, Mr. Sean Madsen did not die fighting the boss. And I believe uh, Mr. Phil Kolar uh, from uh, Polygon did not die fighting that boss. But I know people who came into it brand new on that game got smoked three, four, five, ten times in some cases. Right. And that's okay, because that boss expected you to know things. Right. Dark Souls is a lot more forgiving about that. It... The only thing it expects you to realize is, shit, I have a broken sword and that thing is going to kill me. I can't fight it. I got to get out of here. And to be fair, with the reputation that that game has, I've met a few people who have asked me, how do I beat that boss? And I'll say, do you still have the broken sword? And they'll say yes, and I'll have to tell them, look for the door out of the room. You can't fight it in your condition. You have to go do other stuff. Right. That's more of a problem of... Dark Souls having a reputation and people assuming, I have to fight this boss with a broken sword. Right. What the fuck? Instead of them thinking about it intuitively. And that's... Stabbing that's, it from the head. Right, that's probably right. more the, the marketing's fault than anything else. Because if you, if you look at it from a perceivable consequence perspective, if you look around that room, that door's pretty obviously there and easy to get through. Right. But otherwise, that game teaches you a lot. It teaches you to equip your stuff. It teaches you how to block. It teaches you dodging. It teaches you how to survive. It teaches you hidden rooms are available, etc. So on. And it teaches you plunging into the, the sweet meats of an enemy's fucking skull to deal shitloads of damage to make that battle easier than it would be otherwise. Right. It's, it's an experience that, that, that goes out of its way to teach you as much as it can before it sicks you on the world. Yeah. And I, I feel like from a, a, a learning via perceivable consequence as much as learning via tutorial sense, it's probably the best game in terms of handling that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree. That's part of it. Another part of it is that I feel like while there are a couple of boss fights that are redundant and a couple of boss fights that are just goofy, Dark Souls Pound for Pound is the game with the most believable but unnaturally interesting concepts in it. By which I mean, 
most of the visual stuff you'll see in, say, Bloodborne or Dark Souls 3 either comes down to freaky as fuck monster design or obviously beautiful world vista that connects up to shit in an right. obvious way. Right. Like, if you if you think about the views that you see in Dark Souls 3, it's it's mostly, wow, that is a gigantic city, and I'm going to go there. Right. Which is cool. You know, that's that's cool. But it doesn't it doesn't stray too far from beautiful city, dilapidated crap city, beautiful cityscape, dilapidated crap, you know, whatever. It's, it's the same couple of things slopped around as needed. And even from a visual perspective, you only get so much. Right. Dark Souls has an underground set of islands in the middle of nowhere hidden at the bottom of a tree that you have to climb all the way down. And that is one of the most beautiful set pieces I have seen in any of the franchise. Just miles of just water and trees growing up from it. And the only reason that it's down there is for one of the guilds. Right. And it's probably a guild that most people are never even going to fucking use, to be honest. Right. You, there, there's no reason to go down there. You don't have to do it if you don't want to. But it's just such a visually striking environment that, you know, how could you not at least want to do it once, you know, just right. to see it? And the further you go into it, especially once you get to the, the, the Dragon Guildmaster and you see, like, the tree roots start coming together and, like, the, the water starts to, like, darken in the area. It, it's just such a beautiful aesthetic that it's just miles of water and trees. And it doesn't necessarily have a purpose beyond housing this one boss, but it asks so many interesting questions about that world. Yep. That's pretty much what Dark Souls is. And, I mean, even beyond that, there's there's just other places that are just visually interesting, you know? You you get out of QLAG's domain, and you go down to the bottom, and you go to the lava zone that's down there, and it's just, it's such a an aesthetically beautiful backdrop environment. Right. And you compare that to, like, the underground, uh, like, the underground lake in Dark Souls 3, and that's interesting, but, you know, it's just a lot of rocks and water. It, it doesn't, it doesn't have that that vibrant color and feel to it that it has in the original. I wouldn't say so much the vibrant, the vibrancy of it, but right, the definitely, definitely the feel is, is there. Because one thing that Dark Souls never struck me as is vibrant, for obvious reasons. Right, but it, it, even so, it makes good use of color. Even when there's dark zones, the, the game right. makes very good use of color. Right. And in that zone, it's a very, a very lively, vibrant red. It's meant to indicate danger. But in its own way, it feels alive. Right. Not in a good way, not in a welcoming way, but definitely in a way where it's hard to forget. I mean, there's... You can go on forever with the cool shit in Dark Souls 1. I mean, you go inside of a fucking <laughs> painting at the zone. Yeah. Nobody, none of the games have done that since. Like, there's just so many interesting little things that were ideas that they came up with that have never been explored again. Right. In the original, in the original Dark Souls... You go inside of a painting, and the painting is the zone that ultimately leads to a boss. And you don't have to fight that boss. Right. She tells you, look, I'm not going to fight you, but you don't belong here. If you want to fight, I'm going to fucking kill you. But if you don't, you can leave, and I'm not going to do anything about it. And you can just go. And the game leaves you to your own devices, right? And if you want to fight her, you're a jerk. 
but you could fight her. You can do it. You absolutely can. And, you know, then there's the boss that you face, Gwendolyn, I think. Dark Sun Gwendolyn. Mm-hmm. Where he says to you, hey, listen, if you come into my room, I'm going to fucking kill you. But I'm doing a good service here, and I'd like you to be a part of that. I'm trying to help people to protect them from invaders and horrible folks. Would you consider being a part of my team? And you can do that. You can ally yourself to his cause, and you can do a good service for the people of Dark Souls. Or you can enter that room, and it's just an infinite hallway that he backs downward, firing at you as he goes to get away from you. And it's such an interesting boss battle, aesthetically. Mechanically, it's just run and hit him while dodging his shit. But aesthetically, it's just so interesting running down this infinite hallway, dodging missile projectiles until you can get some hits in. And then when he dies, you realize the hallway is just a hallway. It's not really that long. Right. It was all a mirage. Yeah, there's, there's a guy that you release early on in the game. I don't remember his name because he's, I only remember him by his deeds, not by who he is. But he's wearing the Ring of Favor and Fortune. And he's wearing the, the, the armor of favor. You can release him if you want from a prison in the undead parish. You don't have to, but he'll show up anyway. And he mostly just hangs around being a jerk. And then eventually, around halfway through the game, he kills the firekeeper of the Firelink Shrine and deuces, bitches, and he's out. But you can find the, the black crystal there, and you can take that with you to An Orlando, and you can find him. And you show up, and he's like, hey, I didn't expect to see you here, but me and my two friends are going to beat your ass. And if you kill him, you get that firekeeper's soul back, and you can give it back to her. And just that moment, as simple as it is, the game has no concept of morality. It doesn't ascribe moral value to any of the choices that you make. It doesn't care. The world of Dark Souls sucks, and it knows the world of Dark Souls sucks. And if you choose to ascribe morality to it, you can. It doesn't matter. But the world of Dark Souls makes it important, makes it known that that action means something. Whether it's an important thing, whether it's it's something that you dismiss, whatever, that means something in the confines of that world. And that's not something that the later games necessarily do as much. It's a simple thing that's challenging to accomplish and has a certain degree of value to it. Because you can just cash in that soul and get a little bit more healing out of it if you want. Or you can do what is probably the, the morally right thing, not that Dark Souls is going to judge you on it, and bring this poor woman back from the dead. Well, that was also what was it made the Kingsfield games interesting, because nothing was particularly explained in detail. You would come across things, and you would have to piece them together your, your, yourself. Right, and Dark Souls works in that same way, but it's... I kind of feel like Kingsfield has its own inherent morality the more you piece stuff together. Dark Souls doesn't care so much. No, Kingsfield really didn't care. I mean... I didn't spend as much time with the franchise as you did, so it's possible I took different things away from it, but, like, Dark Souls presents you with a lot of bosses who aren't necessarily all that evil. Right. Like, Q-Lag looks horrifying, you know? She's the naked upper body of a woman attached to the head of a giant tarantula, and all the rest of it, obviously. 
And she looks like she's an awful fucking person. Right. And then you do the research by playing through the game and you realize, no, the witches of Isolith were trying to fix the flame using pyromancy and they fucked up. And one of them got turned into the bed of chaos. One of them got turned into a demon. And two of them got turned into women who were coming out of spiders. And one of those two women actively took all of the poison in Blighttown into herself to fix the residents. Kulag was not a bad person. She was just protecting her sister. Right. And it's that's interesting to me, is that the game doesn't say anything bad about you doing what you're doing or anything good about it. Morality is, is a concept that Dark Souls is willing to allow you to consider, but that it has no meaningful statement on. Right. And it gives you plenty of opportunities to be a dick or a good person, but it doesn't care what you choose to do. No, you can still see the end of it. It's just what you see along the way that makes it different. I also feel like pound for pound, that and Bloodborne probably have the best DLC of the lot as well. Right. Like, Bloodborne's DLC is very interesting and probably has one of the absolute worst final bosses in any of the games. And Dark Souls has an interesting DLC that pound for pound has one of the absolute worst final bosses in any of the game. And at least the bosses are actually exclusive to the DLC. Mm -hmm. Dark Souls was very interesting in the way it handled stuff. You just get yanked into a zone and suddenly, oh shit, I'm fighting a fucking manticore. Right. Yeah, the vistas in Dark Souls were very impressive. Uh, climbing out of the uh, archives and just seeing that Hydra in the background. Yeah. And um, little touches of detail here, here and there. Uh, the undead dragon roaring at you and its wing crumbling off. Just those people just really cared about that fucking game. And pacing-wise, the game was mostly really good. Like, right. the catacombs were far more difficult than I think they needed to be for the boss that they had. Right. Because the catacombs were very challenging to deal with, and you would probably expect to die a lot. But Pinwheel was kind of a piece of shit, as bosses go. Yeah. The Bed of Chaos was not necessarily difficult so much as it was frustrating. But I feel like, in terms of overall pacing, they got a lot of that game right. Yeah. The Taurus Demon was challenging as hell the first time you fought it. In subsequent battles, no. You would just stand in his dick and fucking stab, stab, stab until he was dead. But that first time you fought him, he was rough. Yep. The, the Vagina Dragon. Gaping Dragon. Gaping, Gaping dragon. dragon, yeah. That monster... Playing it now is not a challenge, but the first couple of times you faced that thing, it was amazing. Yeah. So many of those bosses are interesting, too. Like, the, the most interesting bosses in some of those later games don't hold a candle to things like, again, um, the Gaping Dragon, or the Ceaseless Discharge, or, you know, Q-Lag. Right. And sure, Gwyn was fucking lame as a final boss, but... By and large, that game just had a good idea of what it wanted to be, of where it wanted to go, of what it was trying to do. Well, Gwyn might have been lame, but he was important to the story. Important enough that they brought him back for the third game, and he was still fucking lame that time around, too. Right. To be honest. Maybe Gwyn should just retire, just in general, I think. No, I think he is going to retire now, but he's not going to get any more games, according to... Uh... And I'll probably do another one at some point. And when they do, I'll play it. Yeah, I feel like they probably need to address that franchise eventually. Like the French, like the last time they put a franchise to bed was Echo Knight, 
And to be fair, Echo Knight was a franchise that you, you couldn't really go any further with it. And it had limited shelf life and limited popularity. I could see them doing another one, and I wouldn't object to it, but it was not a franchise you needed a lot of. <clears throat> uh, Armored Core has been dormant for a couple of years, but I'm sure they're going to go back to that, etc., etc. It's the best franchises that they have are always the ones that people have new ideas for, and I'm sure somebody in a, in a couple of years is going to have a new idea to do something with the Souls franchise, and we're going to get another game from that in some way, shape, or form. And all here is hoping. Either that or some Kingsfield or something along those lines. Eh, I wouldn't be mad at another Kingsfield, especially since now we're at a point where people might accept that more readily than they did. Correct. But, that's about all the time we have for today. Join us next time when our topic will be five video games that might have given me herpes. Thank you all for listening. This is Mark B. signing off. Good night, folks.